We're jumping into a new sermon series this morning called But I Say. But I say, and this is kind of the second installment of a larger series that we've been in since last uh, August called The Uncommon Kingdom. And The Uncommon Kingdom is a look into the greatest sermon ever preached between Matthew chapter 5 through Matthew chapter 7 called what? What's it called? The Sermon on the Mount. All right. That is the greatest sermon ever preached. Jesus had his disciples on the hillside and then hundreds, maybe even thousands of people had gathered around and he began to preach what we call the, un, the, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and we call it the uncommon kingdom because that really is what Christ was preaching. He was revealing what kingdom life is and how it is that the citizens of the kingdom of God should live how this kingdom is unlike anything else. Therefore, the citizens of the kingdom will be unlike anyone else. And we jumped in last August by looking at the very first part of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 1 through 12, with what we call the Beatitudes. And these were, um, this was kind of an unpacking. You remember the Beatitudes where Jesus would say, blessed are the poor in spirit, and blessed are uh, the meek, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the merciful, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are peacemakers. So he walked through all of these pronouncements of blessing, and what he was revealing to us is the life of blessing, the uncommon blessing that is ours as citizens of the kingdom of God. And the Beatitudes, like the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, weren't necessarily a list of do's and don'ts, but rather it was a revealing of a who we are in Christ. It was a, 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 a showing us the clothes that we wear as kingdom citizens. So it wasn't a list of do's and don'ts. And, and none of the Sermon on the Mount is a list of do's and don'ts, but rather it is a revealing through Christ of what life looks like rather than what we do, what he can do in us and what, what he died to do in us and what he came to produce in us. And so you came through Matthew 5, 1 through 12, through the Beatitudes, and then you get to verse 13 uh, through around 16, and what you find is Jesus begins to reveal what is the fruit of that blessed life, of having that uncommon blessing. What is the fruit? And ultimately, he says, the fruit of that blessed life is that we will be salt and light. Remember, Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. What does that mean? Those who have the uncommon blessing are meant to be difference makers in their world. And we're the salt of the earth because we are the flavor. And what Christ has done in us is the taste. It's the flavor that the lost world needs. And we are the light of the world because in Christ and through him and with him, we are pushing back the darkness. And so you have this blessing. You have the fruit of that blessing being salt in light. And then in verse 17, Jesus uh, begins to teach something that I think for them, for the people gathered around there, was probably kind of hard to hear. Jesus said something like this, I have not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. To fulfill it. Now here's why that would have shaken them a little bit, because his disciples and the people gathered around had been looking for a king for a redeemer who would come and break uh, the yoke of the burden of the law off of their life. You see, the law had become this list of do's and don'ts. It had become this standard 
of, of righteous living they could never attain. And so the law had just become a burden on them. And they were looking for a king who would come and break that and abolish that. But instead of coming and doing away with it, Jesus said, I haven't come to abolish it. I've come to fulfill it. In other words, I've come to do for you on your behalf what you could never do on your own. And then we get to verse 20 of Matthew 5, and we have this summarization statement. This really is kind of, a, kind of a summarization of the heart of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, for those people that were sitting around there, who heard that, that was a gasp moment. That was one of those <gasps> moments. Well, what do you mean? You, you ever had somebody say something to you so jarring it took your breath away, right? Everybody just remember back when somebody told you that Millie Vanilli really couldn't sing. You remember that? It was terrible. You're like, but wait a minute, blame it on the rain. And it, but that's not them. That's not them singing. <gasps> that can't be true. Right? You ever have those moments where somebody says something so jarring, it takes your breath away? That's what happened just then. When, when the Lord said, unless your righteousness exceeds that, goes above that of the scribes and Pharisees, you're not going to enter the kingdom of heaven. Here's why that was so staggering. Because the scribes and Pharisees were the standard of righteousness, they were the standard by which everyone else's, everyone else's righteous living was measured, which immediately prompted a question in everyone's heart, which is, if they're not getting in, then is there any hope for me to get in? And this is why Christ said, I have come to do for you what you could never do. I'm going to reveal the law to you. Then I'm going to live it perfectly for you so that I can produce this righteousness in you. And now we get into a, a, a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches us how kingdom citizens should live and navigate through their everyday life. Specifically, how are we to live in relation to the world around us? How are we to live in relation to others? And we need this teaching. Here's why. Because the gospel while it certainly uh, restores us to right relationship with God, it is also given so that it might restore us to right relationship with one another. That's why when Jesus asked, what is the greatest commandment? What did he say? Love God, be in right relationship with, with him, and love your neighbor, be in right relationship with one another. And this is what the gospel does for us. And the work of the gospel in us, the work of the gospel in me changes everything about me. And Jesus is about to reveal how this gospel then that has been given to us and this righteousness that we have in him shapes everything that we do and addresses every issue of our life. So he's about to deal with how the gospel um, addresses what I do when a friend offends me. About to deal with that. He's about to show us what, how, how the gospel addresses how we view others sexually. He's about to address that. How does the gospel deal with 
um, swearing an oath and giving my word? How does the gospel deal with um, how I should treat people who have offended me and, I, and, and wanting to retaliate against my enemies? How does the gospel speak into that? And so in Matthew 5, 21, really through 48, um, Jesus begins to give these very practical, everyday issues. He starts teaching through these to give us examples of the type of life he is calling his followers to live. And he's going to deal with these issues by, by confronting and by challenging what had become accepted religious norms. He's going to deal with these by challenging what all of them had come to just accept as normal religious behavior. He's going to show them that what they've been taught and the conclusions then that they've come to about what it means to live righteously is actually below the standard that God has for the citizens of his kingdom. And so through these examples, Jesus gives us six of them. And we're going we're gonna to spend some time in them over the next six weeks. Through these six examples, Jesus repeats two phrases. And he repeats these phrases in every single example. The phrase is this. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. You have heard that it was said. In other words, uh, here is what you were taught. You were taught this. Here's the conclusion you've come to. This is how you're living your life. But I say to you, this is how you should be living. This is what God actually expects. And there's something very substantial that is happening in these words of Christ. There is this undoing of generations of, of religious thinking. And he's undoing it by drawing a stark contrast between what they have come to accept as okay uh, righteousness and the okay standard of, of living religiously, they've come to accept that as just fine. And Jesus is drawing a stark contrast now between what they've come to accept and what God actually requires of his people. And wouldn't you want the Lord to do that here? Wouldn't you want the Lord among new beginnings in this church, in our hearts personally, to just come and undo anything in our life that needs to be undone, that we've begun to just accept as okay behavior, we've begun to justify, we've, begun to be, we've come to just be fine with it, and to let God come and just undo that and raise us up in the righteousness of Christ to live where God has called us to live. That's what Jesus is beginning to reveal to them, and he does that by saying, you have heard that it was said... But I say to you. And so to help us kind of understand this and, and to help shape our thinking uh, over the next six weeks, um, while we go through these six examples, I want to give you two statements. And these two statements are going to kind of be a banner over our next six weeks as we navigate through this series. And I think they'll help give context. And here they are. I think in each of these examples, we see Jesus do two things. First, Jesus is describing the righteousness he provides by his grace and produces through his spirit. He's he is describing the righteousness he provides by his grace and then produces 
through his spirit. Jesus has provided a righteousness for us, a standard of righteous living that we could never achieve apart from him. Remember, just in verse 20, he has just said, unless your righteousness goes beyond the superficial standards of religion and gets to the core of your heart, it's not enough. Unless your righteousness goes beyond the superficial standards of religion and gets at the core of who you are, it's not enough. Here's why. Because religion wants to deal with the deeds of our life. Jesus wants to deal with the desires in our heart. Religion wants to focus in on, on our behaviors and what we do with our hands. Jesus wants to focus on the condition and the position of our heart. Religion is only going to deal with the fruit of our sin. But Jesus wants to get down to the root of it. He wants to get down to the root of our sin. You know, last fall, my boys and I went over to my mom's and we were cutting back just a bunch of overgrowth at her house. And um, she had a spot in her front yard that was just crazy overgrown. And we were cutting that stuff back and pulling weeds and piling it and tossing it and all sorts of stuff. And there was this one uh, vine that had grown up, and it had grown so tall it had grown up. It had wrapped around a utility pole. This thing was huge, and you could tell it had been cut back quite a bit. And so I cut it back, but then I realized, you know what? This thing's just going to grow back again. And so I started digging around down in the dirt, and I, I could tell this had been cut back before. It had been poisoned before, and it just kept getting taller and tall. Y'all know those vines with the thorns on them? I don't actually know what they're all called, but they choke out trees. They're enormous, and they're a pain. And so I started digging around in the ground. I want you to see the root system. That's just a picture of the roots. Now, that's a small picture. Um, you can see that little green root uh, shoot that comes right out of the middle. That's where the vine took off. And underneath that, was, about, was a root system that was about three feet wide and about two feet deep down into the ground. And it wasn't until we started digging that I started pulling out these bulbs and these, this root system up out of the ground. And the more I dug, the more I kept pulling up. That vine had been cut back no matter, I don't know how many times, but it kept coming back. Why? Because we never got down to the root of it. Everyone that was sitting around Jesus, when he began to teach this, um, they had been taught what's most important is just cutting back. They had been taught religion is about managing the exterior. Religion is about making sure the external is all in line. And if you get the exterior right, if you just keep cutting back the fruit of your sin so that nobody sees it, eventually the internal will happen as well. 
And some of us have settled into a rhythm of living where we've gotten just fine with cutting back the external, making sure the exterior looks good. And Jesus sees that. He saw it in the Pharisees. And when he saw it in their life, do you know what he said? He said, you try to live and present yourself as righteous, but really you're washed, uh, whitewashed tombs and inside you are filled with dead man's bones. Because the transformational work of the Lord had not gotten into their heart. Isn't it exhausting? Some of you know the exhaustion of living a life where you are managing the external and the exterior, making sure no one sees what's really inside. Can we just acknowledge that is exhausting and fruitless and pointless? <laughs> And this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I haven't come to help you learn how to manage the exterior better. I've come to get to the heart of the matter. I've come to get to the heart of the matter. Because the external does not address the real issue. The real issue is the incurable sin condition that runs throughout all of humanity. And all of the, listen, all of the right exterior does not get to the root of that condition. It doesn't get there. I think for some of us, we've been chopping at the surface. And Jesus wants to get down to the root. He wants to get down in there. And he wants to give you a, a, a righteousness that is about more than making sure everybody thinks you're righteous. And it is about living a transformed life. That's what Jesus is calling them to. So listen, church, coming to church can't do this. Being a religious person can't do this. Being a good person doesn't do this. Doing enough good things doesn't do this. The only thing that does this work is being born again. Being made new in the work of Christ. Jesus alone, the gospel alone, can do this. So, Jesus, by his grace, provides for us a righteousness that is greater than what religion could ever Offer And he gives us the Holy Spirit then who empowers us to live out that righteousness. So that's kind of the first sentence that I want us to have as we navigate through, that Jesus is describing the righteousness he provides and produces through his Spirit. Here's the second sentence I want you to have. Jesus is expressing the authority of his word over every area of our life. He's expressing the authority of his word over every area of our life. When Jesus repeats the phrase, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, he's confronting and correcting the misinterpretation of God's expectation. God set an, expe- he's, he, God set an expectation, but it's become misinterpreted. And so every time he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, he is correcting and moving them back toward God's expectation. And he's highlighting beliefs that were contrary to what God revealed and contrary to what God expected. And he is expressing his absolute authority over every area of our life. Now listen, 
all of us have heard that it was said. Here's what I mean. All of us have accepted um, standards of living, standards of righteousness, standards of good behavior. We've all got those that we've just come to accept based on conventional wisdom, based on family tradition, based on what my mama taught me, based on what my friend's counsel is, based on my favorite preacher. We've all heard these things and we've built um, uh, standards, accepted standards of living based. We've all heard that it was said. When Jesus said that, that's what he was talking about. He said, you've, you've heard that it was said. The Pharisees taught you this. You've, you've heard this. And all of us have that. But listen, for the citizens of the kingdom of God, we have to establish the word of God as the authority over our lives so that when conventional wisdom doesn't line up with God's word, when what my family expects of me and tells me and what my mama says I should be doing and who I should be and how I should, when that doesn't line up with God's word, when my friend's counsel doesn't line up with God's word, when what the preacher said doesn't line up with God's word, citizens of the kingdom of God have to be willing to move away from this in order to embrace the authority of Christ. And this is what Jesus is doing. And that authority is over every area of our life, meaning this, for citizens of the kingdom of God, there is nothing off limits from Jesus. Now, that's easy to hear and hard to walk in. Are you with me? It's easy to say, oh, there's nothing off limits. Jesus can do what he wants to do in my life. I surrender all. Right, we can do all that. But we live segregated lives. We live lives that we compartmentalize. And we're, we're totally okay with Jesus having this part. But we're going to hold on to this over here. We're totally okay being obedient in this area, but I'm going I'm to do my thing over here. I've got, I'm, I'm going to repent of the easy sins, but I'm going to hold this one back because it's just, I can't do that. So every time that we hear, you have heard that it was said, but I say to you, every time we hear that, I want us to remember this is a standard of righteousness that God expects and Jesus provides and I want us to remember this is the authority of Christ over every area of our lives. And so, so with that in mind, I want us to look at the first example Jesus gives in Matthew chapter 5. So look at verse 21 with me. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. Let's look at this first example that he gives of, of how citizens of the kingdom of God are to live. He says, you have heard that it was said to those of old... You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard, and you'll be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. 
Lord, would you just reveal to our hearts the power of your word? Would you illuminate it, God? Would you, would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear? God, would you let the living word do its work? Reveal what doesn't please you. Pull that out by the root, God, and begin to build in us the righteousness of Christ. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So this first example that Jesus gives of what righteous, righteousness in us looks like, he begins by talking about murder, right? the physical act of killing someone. But what we see right away is Jesus isn't just dealing with the act of murder. He's going to press into the heart and talk about what fuels murder, right? The issue with murder is not simply the act of the hands, but it is the attitude of the heart. Jesus wants to get beneath the surface here. He wants to get beneath the fruit and deal with the root. And what is at the root of murder is anger. He wants to deal with anger. And that applies to everybody. Doesn't it seem like 2020 was the year of anger? Holy cow. It just seemed like it was the year of anger. We saw it last summer. We saw it last week. When this anger starts to brew in us and it begins to just take root and it's just looking for a place to, to erupt. We're in a world that is becoming more and more angry and more and more hostile, which means what? It means we live in a world that is more and more in need of the gospel and more and more in need of the kingdom citizens who have been made new in Christ to live as salt and light, more and more in need of the king, uh, citizens of the kingdom of God to be the peacemakers in the world that Jesus called us to be in the Beatitudes. It needs that from us more and more. Now listen, can we just, let's just talk about something. It's just us in here. Church people can be the worst when it comes to anger, okay? I'm, we're just going to talk about something for just a minute. I've been to the ball field with some of y'all's. Mm-mm. I've been out there. I sit at them Buckeye games. Hello. Okay, I know what y'all yell from the bleachers. By the way, that yelling has never changed a call in the history of athletic achievement. Not one time has your yelling changed a call on the field, but it doesn't change it from, from us acting like a crazy person. You know what I mean? I have officiated... Upward basketball games. Does everybody know what upward basketball is, right? It's that little gospel-centered, tiny, Jesus-loving basketball league for little kids that run around, the ball's too big for them, and they're running around. I have had parents go psycho crazy on me because I would not call double dribbling on a five-year-old. I'm like, he can't dribble. He can't walk and think. The, the, the game is zero to zero, and that's where it's going to stay. Your kid's not trying out for a D1 scholarship, but they're just yelling crazy. I grew up with my parents playing church softball. <laughs> Who played in church softball league in here? Come on. New Beginnings used to have one. I've been at them games. I have watched grown men threaten to beat one another with a baseball bat at a church softball game. Okay, we can be the worst. If I'm honest with you, and I'm going to be, um, anger is an issue in my life. It's an issue for me. Uh, it, I do a really good job of hiding it from you. 
But all that means is my family usually catches it. And when I say that, some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You do a really good job of making sure no one outside of your house sees who you really are beneath the surface. So as I manage it in front of you, hiding it, making sure you don't see it, here's what usually happens. The slightest little stray word from my wife, and boom. An honest mistake from my children, boom. Y'all going to leave me on the island? Anybody in here know what I'm talking about? For some of you, your home feels like a war zone. There's animosity between siblings that makes it feel like it'll never be okay again. For some of us, we have friendships that are being destroyed by anger because too many live as a ticking time bomb just looking for the next chance to erupt. What I, I hope you'll hear with me today and come with me to, to get this life from Jesus, I hope that what you'll hear is that our king wants to deal with that in our life. He wants to deal with that in us. He doesn't, he doesn't desire that for us. He wants to address this heart issue and those things in us that are beneath the surface. Listen, because... While most people have never and will never commit the act of murder, all of us deal with the root of murder, which is anger. And Jesus is saying that the judgment of God toward the action of a murderer's hands is the same judgment he's going to lay on the anger that resides in our hearts. In other words, in the uncommon kingdom, anger is the new murder. Now, that ought to make everybody go, <laughs> the judgment that God lays on the action of murder is the same judgment he lays on the sin of anger in our lives. And I think the reason that we can just all acknowledge that we deal with anger is because for all of us, we deal with the underlying causes of anger. Did you know that rarely anger is the real issue? Very rare. Most of the time, there's all this stuff underneath the surface that's just pushing anger to the top. Rarely is it the real issue. Anger tends to be built like an iceberg. There's the part above the surface that you see. You know, in an iceberg, you see 10%, 9 or 10% above the water, and 90 to 91% is down beneath. You don't see it down there. And anger tends to be that way. Look at this. You've got... The anger iceberg, isn't that nice? You're welcome. You've got this part that is above the water, but look at what's beneath. What's pushing anger to the surface? Fear, grief, being overwhelmed, being disgusted, being attacked, feeling stress, feeling guilty, feeling nervous, feeling like you're trapped, feeling like you've been disrespected, like you've been disappointed, you've been hurt being lonely, offended, wounded, regretful, insecure. I can tell you that when anger breaks the surface of my life, these are the things nobody sees underneath it. 
That's what's in there. Right there. And again, listen to me. This is why Jesus came. (laughs) This is why he came. Up until this moment, the Pharisees said, all you have to do is control what people see. Just manage that anger. Don't let it out. And Jesus said, nope. I've come to get beneath the surface. I want to deal with all of that. Because if I get to your heart, I fix the anger. When I get to deal with the anger, I fix the murder. This is why Jesus came. This is the work that he wants to do to transform us at the core of who we are. And you say, okay, I'm with you. But isn't there such a thing as righteous anger? Isn't that a real deal? The answer is yes. There is such a thing as righteous anger. There is absolutely things that should cause a righteous anger to be stirred up in the people of God. Human trafficking should cause every one of us to have a righteous anger stirred up in us. Murder in the womb and the devaluing of human life should cause a righteous anger to be stirred up in us. Racism should cause a righteous anger to be stirred up in the people of God. Spousal abuse ought to cause a righteous anger to just awaken in our hearts. The things that make God angry should make us angry. What grieves the heart of God should grieve the heart of the citizens of his kingdom. And the issue is not, do we often get angry about the right thing? The issue is we tend to act out that anger in an unrighteous way. Should I be angry over racism? Yes. But when that leads to violence, it's unrighteous and it's sinful. Should I be angry over murder in the womb? Yes. But when that leads to me burning down a clinic or killing a doctor or shaming a mother who's just trying to make the hardest decisions, when that leads to that, it's sin and it's unrighteous. So how do we do that? (laughs) How do I navigate righteous anger? Because that's what God's word tells me to do. Ephesians 4, 26, be angry and do not sin. Well, that doesn't seem fair at all. (laughs) Because I am thriving at one of those. (laughs) How do you do that? You can't. Apart from being made new in Jesus Christ. You cannot do this. Here's why. Because righteous anger always has redemption in mind. And I can't have redemption in mind if I haven't been redeemed. Righteous anger is never about some punishment or somebody just getting what they deserve. Can I just tell you what one of my favorite phrases is? to my shame, I'll just let them sleep in the bed they make. Anybody else? They can just sleep in the bed they make. That's not righteous anger. Righteous anger always has redemption in mind. It has the glory of God in mind. And it does those things because... um, um, 
It is always looking for God to be glorified, for his name to be made famous in any situation, which means this. I heard someone say this this week. If I'm wrong in how I'm right, then I'm wrong even though I'm right. You with me? If I'm wrong in how I'm right, then I'm wrong even though I'm right. So just very quickly, I want to look at the ways that Jesus shows us, one, how we deal with anger in an unrighteous way, and then how to deal with it in a righteous way. What do we do with this anger? Look at verse 22 of Matthew 5. He says, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. What you see here is the progression of unrighteous anger, unchecked anger. The first thing you see is that anger grows in the heart. He said, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable. He's talking about this anger that grows in our hearts. Anger will simmer and it will stew and it becomes a a growing disposition in our heart and it becomes bitterness toward the person who offended us to the point where we can't even tolerate being anywhere near them. You got anybody in your life that makes your skin crawl when you get around them? That probably isn't righteous anger. That's probably a bitterness that has taken root in your heart, and it's just become a disposition toward them. Anger grows in our hearts. Then here's the next thing we see. It erupts from our mouth. Anger erupts from our mouth. It says, whoever insults his brother will be liable to the judgment. This is where anger moves from simmering and stewing to slander. This is where anger grows in the hearts and then moves to insults. We start to talk ill about this person. We start saying things that are hurtful and harmful, and we say insulting words because we want them to feel the way we feel. There have been times I have walked away in sin feeling amazing about having won an argument because I know I made them feel the way I feel, and I just walked away Ric Flair strutting, I got you, baby. I did it, yes, sir, gotcha. Walk away just holding a championship belt like I just won something, like an idiot. That's unrighteous. It's unrighteous. It simmers in the heart, and anger erupts from the mouth. And look at the last thing it says. Anger then destroys the relationship. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the judgment. This is the moment where anger slaughters that friendship, slaughters that relationship. This is where we say, forget you, I'm done. Forget you. I'm done. I start to write them off. We break the relationship. And listen to me, church. While you may have never committed murder, we all have relational bodies laying on the floor around us. So how do we do this in a righteous way? How do we do it in a righteous way? Look at what Jesus says next in verse 23. So if you are offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that your brother has something against you. Leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. This is where we see the righteousness of Jesus beginning to be lived through us. So what do I see here? The first thing I see is that we have to recognize that broken fellowship with man hinders fellowship with God. If we ever get this, 
It'll transform us. Broken fellowship with man hinders fellowship with God. Jesus said, rather than offering your sacrifice of worship, I want you to be reconciled to your brother, to your sister. And then after you've reconciled, come them, come make your worship, come make your sacrifice. This is why when David, when he was repenting in Psalm 51, uh, uh, when he was repenting of the sin that he had committed with Bathsheba and the murder of her husband and how he had sinned against their family and his own, when he was repenting of that in Psalm 51, he said in verse 16 to God, he said, for you will not delight in my sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Why? Because the sacrifice of God is my broken heart. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. We have to recognize that we cannot worship. Lord, help us understand this. We cannot worship in a grace we refuse to extend to others. So we have to see that broken fellowship and how it hinders our fellowship with God. Here's the second thing. We've got to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit's leadership and pursue reconciliation. Listen to me, that means we gotta go after it. We gotta sometimes be the first one who wades out into the water and says, I'm sorry. We gotta be the one who picks up the phone and says, you know something's not right, I know something's not right, and I don't wanna stay here, I wanna fix this. Jesus is saying that reconciliation, you have to leave that offering and you have to leave that there at the altar and go reconcile with your brother because reconciliation is as much a part of worship as singing and sacrificing and tithing and praying and coming to church. This is as much a part of our worship to God as anything else. So we have to be sensitive when the Holy Spirit brings that to mind and then pursue reconciliation. Here's the last one. This one's hard. To own your failure quickly and in humility extend grace. Jesus said, come to terms quickly with your accuser. It's cliche and it's true. The vapor of life that we have on this earth is too short to harbor anger and bitterness. It's simply too short. We need to own our failure quickly. We don't want our life to end with these unreconciled relationships. Do it now. Own what is yours to own. Acknowledge where you were wrong. Ask to be forgiven. And listen, give grace and mercy where you have been wronged. And you say, well, Matt, what if they never ask for forgiveness? Is it possible for a citizen of the kingdom of God to walk in freedom from an offense done if the person who offended never asked for forgiveness? You better know it. You better know it. You want to know how we get that? Christ does the work in our heart. He reminds us of the free grace that was extended to us. Because you know what his word says? While I was still a sinner, while I was still offensive to God, while I was still committing rampant, rancid offenses against a holy God, that's when he died for me, right then. That's when the grace was given. It was well before I ever acknowledged I needed it and well before I ever asked for it. Even if they never ask for forgiveness, 
when you have that grace alive in you and that righteousness of Christ that is alive in you, you can extend it and you can be free. And that's what I want for you this morning. So here's, the, here's what response looks like today. Philip and the team, they're going to just lead us in a, a short time of response. And we're going to have some of our ministers here to connect with you. And this morning, if you would just simply say, I have anger and bitterness that has taken root in my heart and it is pushing through the surface because there's all these other things under the water nobody sees and I've never dealt with. And you just need somebody to pray with you and help begin to lay that down. I want you to come. Maybe this morning you would say, I'm just an angry person and I don't want to be that. I tend to just roam my life looking for somewhere else to explode. And you just need to, God to do that work. If this morning you are someone who has been sinned against and you've just never dealt with what that's done in your heart and in your relationship with the Lord and you need God to give you some freedom today, just come on. Maybe this morning you haven't made Jesus your Lord. Can I tell you something? This righteousness we're talking about, it's not something you can earn. It's not something you can work for. It is something given to you when you were born again in Jesus Christ. And some of you need to make Jesus your Lord and Savior today so that once and for all, you can shake off the chains of what you're, the way you're living and start walking in a new life. So however God might be calling you to respond, I'm going to ask you to do that. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to worship. And we'll respond. Lord, I ask that you would move in the next few moments that you would set free, God, those who are in bondage to anger, fear. God, that you would um, teach us what it means to let the righteousness of Christ be lived out in us and through us. So come, Lord Jesus, we pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship.